morning, Freedom Church. Great to see you all here today. So last time that I was up here, uh, we looked at what it was like to be in heaven. And this morning, I thought it would be great for us to look like, uh, for us to talk about what does it look like to be in Christ right now where we are in Christ. Um, but before we get started, I thought I'd kick things off with a little sarcastic humor because that's just in my nature. It's kind of my trademark. If, you, if any of you know me really well, you'll know that that's true. So um, I, I, got, I got this meme from somebody that I work with, and I just thought it was funny. It says, do you remember before the internet that it was thought that the cause of collective stupidity was the lack of access to information? Yeah, well, it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think that um, sometimes when we talk about what it means to be like in Christ, we think that the, the lack of, of people being in Christ has to do with just um, the rejection of the gospel. And I think kind of, it's not that. I think a part of the reason is because the church is not being faithful to go out and preach the message of what it means to be in Christ, to preach the gospel. And that's why we're seeing a deficit of people putting their faith in Christ today. So before we go into what does it look like to be in Christ, I thought it would be, would be really good for us to remind ourselves, how does anybody end up in Christ in the first place? It's a very basic message. We've heard it hundreds of times if, if you've been coming to this church for any period of time. Uh, but it's good to remind ourselves, how did we end up in Christ? And I think it's, it's extremely good for us to remind ourselves about that message so we're prepared to deliver that message, to preach that message into all the world. And so let's just take a minute this morning and start by looking at how does anybody end up in Christ in the first place? So first point, God chose to make it possible for us to be in Christ. This wasn't our idea. It wasn't our plan. It was God's idea, and it was his plan. In Genesis 3.15, way back at the beginning, we see, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And I think we'll all agree that who we're talking about here is Jesus. Jesus is going to come and is going to crush the head of Satan. And we see Jesus talking about this, fulfilling this in John 10.10 10, and giving us a bigger picture of what that looks like in the New Testament where we read, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so this coming of Jesus this crushing of Satan's head, it wasn't just for the sake of destroying Satan and destroying evil. It was for the purpose of giving you, giving me, giving us new life. So again, the whole idea, the whole concept between us being in Christ, that was God's plan before Adam had ever sinned, before Eve had ever sinned, before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God told Adam, before he ever ate of that tree, if you eat of this tree, surely you will die. This didn't catch God by surprise. It wasn't something that he wasn't expecting. He knew exactly what to expect. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And he had a plan. He had a way to forgive you and me and Adam and everybody else on this earth who's ever given into that temptation of the flesh, the temptation to sin. Next point. And every single one of these points that we're going to talk about this morning, every single one of them, in their own right, could be a multi-week message. 
So we're just going to fly through these, and we're going to try and get a big picture, right? We're just going to get a big picture, but we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks digging into each one of these points. So let's just let's take this morning and just try and get that big picture put together. And I would encourage you guys to do that. Um, when I was putting this message together on what it means to be in Christ, what it looks like to be in Christ, I just went through Scripture and looked for every single passage that said, in Christ. And I would encourage you, that's a great way to study Scripture. There are so many different ways to study Scripture. If you've never tried it, try doing that. If you have a question about what the Bible says about a particular subject, just go ahead and look at all those passages that talk about it and read them consecutively, in order. Just go through them all and read them and watch the Holy Spirit speak to you. Watch the Holy Spirit open your eyes and illuminate his word to you. It's amazing. You don't have to come here on Sunday and, and listen to me or Jamie or Pastor Steve. The Holy Spirit will speak to you directly. I'm not telling you not to come to church, please. Don't take that the wrong way. Keep coming here. But also, study it on your own. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you directly. So God chose us to be in Christ. Again, this was his idea. This was his plan. This He chose this to be the case. He wants us to be in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, we read this. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. How many of you will say we are the foolish things of the world? Amen? That's right. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Uh, to, to, he, where am I? God, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So again, God chose for us to be in Christ. Um, in 2 Peter 3.9, we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but who? Everyone to come unto repentance. God wants all of you to be in Christ, and he chose that to be the way that you could have a relationship with him. It's not our choice. It's his choice. We choose to receive the gift, but he's the one who came up with the idea to give us that gift in the first place. You couldn't choose to receive something that God hadn't already decided he wanted to give you. Does that make sense, right? He chose this to be the way that we were going to be in a relationship with him. Next point, God revealed himself to us. You know what? And let me go back one. Let me go back two, because in, in this passage, I wanted to make a point. I was talking with Jamie the other evening. Uh, he was mentioning something that somebody had said to him with respect to preaching. And this person, I think, had a confused idea, a, a wrong idea about who should be preaching? Who belongs in the pulpit? Because this individual had the idea that you need to go to seminary school. You need to be educated by someone in the scriptures. And I think if that's the case, Jesus must not have gotten the memo. Because Jesus chose the weakest among us to be his apostles, to be his disciples. That's the way God works. 
That's the way that he does things. He doesn't take the wise. He doesn't take the learned. He doesn't take the strong. He doesn't want people who do it in their own strength. He doesn't want the wisdom of the world worked into our theology. He wants to speak to us directly through his word, and that's why he chose the weak things of the world to be this for us. So, um, God chose for us to be in Christ. God revealed himself to us so that we could be in Christ. So this is the next way that God made it possible for us to be in Christ. This is how anybody, anybody ends up becoming in Christ. He revealed himself to us. He did it in two different ways through his general revelation and through his special revelation. And if you've never heard those terms before, I'll explain them to you very simply in these passages. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being, abund being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. This is God's general revelation. When we walk outside and we look at what we see, it is abundantly clear that there is a God. If any of you have ever um, listened to Ray Comfort, you'll be familiar with this, um, this way of explaining, or if you've ever, the kids who were with me when we went out on the beach, you heard me say this when we were talking to people about the gospel. If you look at a painting, what is that evidence of? A painter. If you look at a building, what is that evidence of? A builder. When we look at creation... What is that evidence of? A creator. This didn't just come about by some accident, random act of chance. And I think that this idea of creation revealing that there is a creator tells us a whole lot more about that creator than we recognize. It shows us about his creativity. It shows us about his very nature. Because we study the laws of physics, we study the laws of logic, and we recognize something that is inside of this creation couldn't have created it. He has to be outside of our universe, outside of our time experience. He has to be the uncaused first cause. He has to be outside of all this. There is so much revealed to us about who this God is, and we don't even pay any attention to it. So his general revelation really tells us a lot about who God is, the fact that there is a God and who he is. And next, his special revelation. His special revelation just means him revealing himself to us. And let's look at this passage here. In Genesis 3, 8, we see, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord amongst the trees of the garden. From the very beginning, we see God revealing himself to Adam and Eve, showing himself to them. So many times I hear criticism from people, why doesn't God just show himself to us? If he would just show himself to us, then I would believe. Well, I default back to Romans chapter 1. God's revealed himself through his general revelation, but throughout many points in history, God has revealed himself to us through his special revelation. In Exodus 34, 5, we read, Then the Lord came down on the clouds and stood there with him and proclaimed his name to the Lord. God came down and spoke to Moses. He literally came down and showed himself to Moses. In John 1, 4, we read this, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, 
who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God himself came down and walked among us as a man. This is a historical fact, that God came down and walked among us as a man named Jesus, who hearkens from Nazareth. It's a historical fact. No rational historian will deny the fact that there was a man named Jesus who came and walked the earth and did the things that were uh, recorded in the Bible. Even outside of biblical history, we have writers like Josephus and others who write about this man named Jesus. And so his special revelation is another reason that we, we, we can be in Christ. He showed himself to us so that we would want to know him, so that we would want to be in him. And one of the things that I like to, to use as analogy when anybody criticizes this, this idea that Jesus actually came and walked among us and they doubt and they try to cast doubt on the fact that Jesus walked among us is George Washington and the United States of America. I look at the United States of America kind of as a general revelation that something happened to create this nation. You can look back in history and recognize something happened to cause this group of people to form what we currently see today known as the United States of America. And there was this guy, his name was George Washington, way back at the founding of this nation, who walked this very soil. And this guy named George Washington, how do we know about him? Can we see him? Has he revealed himself to us? Is he here with us right now? Can you go over and walk and talk with him? No, you can't. Why not? Because he's not here. But do the history books tell us about him? Does any, do any of you doubt that George Washington is a real historical figure who actually lived and played a role in the founding of the United States of America? Does anybody doubt that? No. Why would we doubt? <laughs> Jamie's raising his hand. <laughs> Why would we doubt that there was a real historical figure, a man named Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God and did miracles amongst thousands of people in the witness of many? Why would we doubt that? If we don't doubt that George Washington was a man, why would we doubt that Jesus Christ is a man? And so next, God made himself available to all who would choose to be in Christ. We see in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God made himself available to all who would choose to receive the gift. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we see, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We saw that Jesus came to earth. Now we see that he did this to give us a gift, a gift of being known by him, uh, a, a gift of being known as in him by his grace through our faith. This verse in Ephesians tells us two things. It tells us, one, salvation is found in Christ as a gift. You can't earn it, and you don't deserve it. You don't work for a gift. A gift is freely given out of love by the giver to the receiver. It's not something that you earn. The second thing, this gift is unique. It's received through faith. What other kind of gift is received through faith? I think these are two really important points 
that we need to meditate on and really understand and ask ourselves, what does it mean to receive the gift of salvation through faith? What does faith really look like? What does being in Christ really look like? Do we really understand that? Do we really know what it means to put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more. The next way that we uh, receive anybody comes into Christ, comes into a relationship with him, the way that it happens is because God sent his servants to preach the gospel so that we could be in him. We read in Matthew, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus commanded his disciples, Jesus commanded his followers to go and preach the message of the gospel so you could be in Christ. Us sitting here today, 2,000 years later, could have the opportunity to be in Christ, and it's still happening that way today. And that's why I said earlier, if we're not going, if we're not preaching, if we're not delivering this message, how is anyone going to come to be, to, is, how is anyone going to become in Christ? It's not going to happen. It can't happen. Why? Because in Romans 10, 17, we see, consequently, faith comes how? From hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. We have to preach this message. People need to be hearing this. We're living through a time that we're living through right now, this time of insanity, because the word is not being faithfully preached. I'm on a, a, a text chain with a, a group of coworkers, and somebody had posted up an article this week uh, with respect to um, state of politics and affairs in the LGBTQ community. And one of my other coworkers responded back. He said, you know, I never really understood Sodom and Gomorrah until now. You look at the state of our nation, you look at the state of the world, quite frankly, and it's because there is a rejection of Christ, but it's also because we're not preaching Christ. We need to be faithful. We need to be out there. We have to start preaching, and we've got to be more diligent about it. We need to be sacrificing of our own needs, wants, and desires. We've got to stop worrying about stuff that we think is important, that needs to be done. Uh, you know, work around the house. I, I know that sounds crazy, but there's a ton of stuff around our house that needs to get done. If it really needs to get done, it's going to get done. Is there stuff that we can put off that doesn't really need to get done so that we can work on making sure that the gospel is going out and building up riches in heaven and building the kingdom of heaven? We really need to take stock. We really need to pause and think about where we are, what are we doing, and what's truly important in this life. Because, frankly, I don't think we would be here where we are today if we all had our priorities straight myself included. I'm raising my hand. I stand here preaching a message, and, and the Holy Spirit is talking to me too, because there are things that I know that I should be doing that I'm not doing. And God tells us that that is sin. Sin is not just the things that we do that we're not supposed to do. Sin is also the things we're supposed to do that we don't do. And so if we know that there is something that God has told us to do, and we're not prioritizing it in our life, we're not putting it in its rightful place in our list of priorities, we're in sin. We really need to think about that. And so after hearing and believing, then God marks us in Christ. And this isn't a maybe deal. This is a promise, complete with a seal that guarantees the final outcome. 
And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so I think this question that we're going to be looking at this morning, the question of what does it look like to be in Christ, that's not the only question we're answering. Because many of us, most of us, hopefully all of us here today who are sitting here listening to this are in Christ. But if you're honest, how many of you have doubted whether you are really saved? How many of you at some point in your life have doubted, do I really believe? Am I really in Christ? I have. I know, and I think probably most of you have. And so what we're going to talk about today is not just how do we know that we're in Christ. What we're going to talk about today is how do we have confidence of our position in Christ? How do we know for sure? How do we have confidence in our salvation? When we look at what it, what it means to be in Christ, what it looks like to be in Christ, we can have confidence that we are in him because we see what it looks like and we can say, oh yeah, that's me. That's me. So, what does it look like to be in Christ? Being in Christ, first of all, I think looks like being in a family. Romans 10, 4, and 5, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all of the others. Romans 12, 9, and 10 says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. And so this, the first passage we see, if we're in Christ, we're now a part of a new family. How else do we explain what happens here and every other church around the world? How else do we explain that instant connection when you meet those who are otherwise perfect strangers, but in fact, they're members of, the, of your family? and you just haven't met yet. That's how we explain it, because when you are in Christ and you walk into a group of other people who are in Christ, they're not strangers. You might not know each other yet, but you're a part of the same family. Amen? And that's why when you walk into a church anywhere, even one where you don't speak the same language, you feel that connection. You know you're amongst family. You feel safe. You feel protected. Because you know there's brotherly love. You know you're going to be looking out for each other. You're going to look out for them, and they're going to look out for you. And so being in Christ looks like being in a family. And being in a family is all good all the time, right, guys? <laughs> Families grow. Not all members of the family are in the same place of maturity. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. So we see we're all a part of the same family, but we're not all in the same place of spiritual maturity. Just like your family at home where you have kids in different ages and even adults who are growing in different ways, we're in different places of maturity, and we need to be patient with each other. We need to be gracious with each other. We need to be loving with each other. If it's hard for us to do that, 
in our blood family at home? How much harder can it be to do that in the body of Christ here where there is even much more diversity than there is in your very own home? And so I want this to be an encouragement for you to think about what does it mean to be in a family? How can you demonstrate more brotherly love towards one another? What can you do to show the family of God that you love them? What are you doing today? What can you do differently tomorrow to be a part of the family of God? Now, if you're in a family, do you spend all of your time as a recluse in your, in your bedroom with the door shut and not interact with your family? Is that what it looks like in a healthy family? I don't think that's what it looks like in a healthy family. Do healthy families come together for an hour and a half, two hours, once a week? No, healthy families don't come together for an hour and a half, two hours, once a week. Healthy families spend a lot of time together. Healthy families encourage each other. Healthy families teach each other. Healthy families strengthen each other. Healthy families are there to weep with each other when they're weeping, to mourn with each other when they're mourning, to rejoice with each other when they're rejoicing. And so if you are a part of the body of Christ, if you are in Christ, if you're a part of this family of Christ, you need to be spending time with your family. You need to be together. You need to be strengthening each other. You need to be encouraging each other. You need to be using the gifts that God has given you to bless the members of your family, right? And so, and please don't take this message as, as me railing on the church here. That's not it. Please, I pray the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction on some of us here today, myself included, to do more, to give ourselves over to him more because I think there's a lot more for us to do and I promise you, when you do that, when you're obedient to God, when you give yourself to him in this way, he blesses you. You find a peace that surpasses all understanding. You find true joy in your life. When you know that you've pleased your father, your heavenly father, how good do you feel? How wonderful is that? Whether you have plenty or you don't, whether you've, you've, you've given up things that you could have to, to obey him, you'll feel good in that. When you put your head down on your pillow at night, I promise you, you'll never sleep better than knowing that you've pleased your heavenly father and you've sacrificed of your own flesh to do that. So the next point, being in Christ looks like being a citizen of a new nation that's ruled by God. We read this in Ephesians. Therefore... Remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You're a part of a new nation. We looked at that last time. We talked about what does heaven look like? We're new citizens. We're in a new nation. We're not just citizens of this world. We're not just citizens of the United States of America or any other nation. When you become a citizen of a new nation something happens. Things change. No matter where you are, you represent your home nation. I read an article this week of a sports, an athlete from here in the United States. I think maybe it was a female NBA player or, or I don't recall exactly. She went over to Russia 
and she had some, maybe it was one of those CBD cigarette things in, with her. That's illegal in Russia. You're not allowed to have those there. She was representing the United States of America and Russia and did a very poor job. She needed to respect the laws of the place that she was visiting in order to represent herself well from the United States of America. Well, guess what? We are foreigners on this earth. We need to represent God well here so that others will look at us and want to know more about where we're coming from, from, the, the, from heaven, quite frankly. Our, our promise is an eternity with God in his heaven. So you represent your home nation. The next thing is your allegiance is governed by that citizenship. Where does your allegiance lie? It doesn't matter where you are physically. You're an American citizen. If you happen to be over in Italy on vacation and a war breaks out between the United States and Italy, who are you going, whose side are you going to fight on? You're going to fight against your own citizens here from the United States of America? No, you are citizens of heaven. So if a war breaks out, and I think a war has been broken out for thousands of years, Whose side are you fighting on? You're a citizen of heaven. You're fighting on the side of God. So when you're at war, the side that you're on is determined by your citizenship. The weapons available to you, the leadership that you follow is determined by your citizenship. Who you listen to, what you're going to do, who you follow, the weapons that you're going to use, all of this is determined by your citizenship. What weapons do we have available to us in this spiritual battle that we are engaged in? What does it look like to be in Christ? In Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. In Christ, you are engaged in a spiritual battle. In Christ, you are listening to your general. You are listening to Jesus himself, and you're following him. You're looking to him for your, leader, your leadership, for your guidance, for everything that you're going to do in this spiritual battle, and you're not lazy about it. You're taking up those weapons, and you're following him, and you're doing everything that he said to do so that you can win this battle. Because we're in a battle together collectively, but we're in a battle individually as well, because Satan desires to have each one of you for himself. And Satan desires to see this church be ineffective. Satan desires to see this church clam up, be afraid to go out there in the world, be afraid to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's not going to be received well, because we're going to be criticized for our positions on things like, what is marriage? on things like, is there only one way to heaven? All of these things, the world is going to tell you, you're intolerant, you're wrong, you're bigoted. Who are we listening to? Where is our citizenship? What nation are we really representing? Hopefully, it's the nation of heaven. Hopefully, it's our allegiance to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So the next point, being in Christ looks like having and living a worldview aligned with Christ, a life lived that is consistent and not hypocritical. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. How many of us have a life that is consistent no matter where we are, no matter who we're in front of? Paul had a life that was consistent no matter where he was, no matter who he was in front of. Do you act differently in church than you do out of church? 
Do you speak differently? Do you use different language? Do you listen to different music? Do you watch different TV shows or media than you would watch here in this building in front of your brothers and sisters on a Sunday or any other day? Do you focus on the same things that you do while you're in church? Praising God, prayer, worship, fellowship with the saints. How does your life compare to the one that Paul was describing of Timothy and himself in this passage? I think we've all got something that we can work on in this area. We want to be consistent Christians. We want to be the same person when we walk out this door as we are when we're in this building. We can't let our words deceive us and have us thinking, I'm somebody else and who I really am, because what you do shows who you are. We need to be consistent Christians. Feeling convicted? Good. This next point is for you. To be in Christ is to be forgiven. Receive the forgiveness God freely offers you. Repent! What is repentance? Repentance is a change of your mind. I heard somebody say it. I don't know who said that. Repentance is a change of your mind. And I'll give you the example. It's a very simple example. I'm in my yard. I have a pond at the bottom of our yard. One of my kids is next to me, and I'm walking towards the pond. I look over to one of my kids, and I say, you know, I don't think I want to go down to the pond. I think I'd rather go back into the house. It's a little bit chilly out here today. And yet I keep walking towards the pond. Did I really change my mind about where I wanted to go? No. If I had turned around and started walking back up towards my house, that would be evidence that I had changed my mind. A lot of us say, hey, this guy told me that I'm on the road to hell. I'm following my own sinful desires and flesh, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not pointing my, myself towards, towards heaven, towards God. I'm not receiving the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. I, I, I want to trust Jesus. I want to follow him. And yet, I keep walking in the direction that I was going before. Is there repentance in my life? Have I really changed my mind about sin? No. It's not what you do that saves you. It's not what we do that saves us. But what we do is evidence that we are saved. God made the way. It's funny. Christine listens to a pastor on the radio. His name is Greg Laurie. And um, he, he said something funny the other day. He said, somebody asked him, so, so Pastor Greg, what are you going to preach about this week? And he looked at him kind of puzzled and he said, same thing I've been preaching for 31 years, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when we're repentant, we receive that message of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We understand what Jesus did for us, the sacrifice that he made, and the work that he did. That was his work, his life, his death, his resurrection is the only way that we're saved. But when we repent and receive by faith, and that's really where this message is going, what does it mean to, to by grace, through faith? What does that faith look like? When you're in Christ, that faith looks like obedience to Jesus. It looks like I'm not going to walk this way anymore. I'm going to turn and I'm going to walk this way. Are you going to do that in your own strength? No. God's going to give you strength. You're going to ask him for help. He's going to give you strength. But you have to make that decision. You have to say, God, this is what I really want to do. And it's not just something that you say. It has, it has to be demonstrated in your life. And 
everyone has a different experience. I'm going to tell you what my experience was, and I think that this really has been helpful for me through the years because if you're like me, you do good and you kind of stink. And then you do good again, and then you're like, man, I really stink. And so there are highs and lows. There are ups and downs. But I remember when Christine first told me about Jesus, and I learned about what it means to be a sinner and that I was a sinner. It didn't take much to convince me that I was a sinner. I worked in a, in a garage. My father uh, owned a, a garage, an auto repair shop in Patterson. And I worked there since I was like 13 years old, first pumping gas, then changing oil, then doing everything under the sun. But in that garage in Patterson, New Jersey, can you imagine what the language was like in that garage? Do you think as a 17, 18-year-old young man that somehow I didn't participate in that kind of language with those guys? No. I had a mouth like a drunken sailor. It was horrible. But after Christine introduced me to Jesus Christ and I understood the penalty for my sin and I understood that even foul language... Jesus died for that. I didn't want to have a part in that anymore. And so I changed. I decided that that wasn't for me. And I stopped talking that way. And let me tell you, it got noticed. When you're in a garage where everybody speaks a certain way, and you're like, good grief, instead of something else, <laughs> it gets noticed. And I think that's the point. The point is, People should notice us for being different. And I'm going to say, people should notice us not just outside the church, inside the church, they should notice us for being different. Like many of you, we have young kids and we're, we're going through that whole period in their lives where we start to consider what does a relationship look like between uh, a you know, young lady and a young man when they're in their teenage years before they're actually ready to get married, but they're noticing each other. And... As a family, we've had some pretty, pretty challenging conversations and realized, you know what? Our family is probably going to look different than a lot of other families in the church because I think we're following the model of the world. I don't think that we're, we're really looking at what does Scripture teach about a relationship between a young man and a young woman and how do we honor God in that way? And are we willing to make the sacrifice? Are we willing to be that one that looks so different that even in the church, people might look at you and say, they're weird. That's strange. Those are the kinds of hard questions that we have to ask ourselves, and those are the kinds of things that I think if we genuinely want to be consistent, those are the things that we need to do. But no, you're going to mess up. You're going to make mistakes. Don't beat yourself. Know that in Christ, you're forgiven. You're going to have times where you make the right decision, and you feel good. You're going to have times when you make the wrong decision, and you feel crappy. Move forward. Know that God is forgiving us. Constantly forgiving. You are forgiven. Being in Christ looks like being alive. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead... He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Death, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. So again, that exact same picture that I was trying to give of walking towards sin, having repent, true repentance and turning and walking away from that sin, we see this message repeated over and over and over again. And when we do, the scripture tells us, we are made alive. So being in Christ looks like being alive. Now think about this. What is the difference between something that's dead and something that's alive look like? Something that's dead is stationary. It's not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. It's cold. It's ugly. I found a dead mouse inside of my lawnmower yesterday that wouldn't run because it had chewed through the ignition wires on the thing. That mouse was nasty looking, that dead little stiff thing. But I'll tell you, when they're alive, some people even keep them as pets. That's us. When we're dead, we're ugly, we're nasty, we're disgusting. When we're made alive in Christ, you become a beautiful, alive creature. All right, next point. I'm getting to the end because we still have to receive communion. Being in Christ looks like freedom and slavery. Paul was not schizophrenic when he wrote these passages. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's free man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. So you are free to be a slave. No, that's not an oxymoron. You are freed from your sin so you can be a slave to Jesus Christ. And I think in the United States of America, we have a very misguided understanding of what biblical slavery looks like. The slavery that we experienced here at the founding of our nation is an abomination. In the Old Testament days, slavery could actually be something that was very gracious on a person. Somebody could find themselves in a position where they, they were in financial ruin. They couldn't even afford to feed themselves or their family. They, they could potentially be possibly exposed to death because of how horrible things were for them. But graciously, they could go and they could become someone's slave. And they would work for that person. And that person would bless them, would give them what they need, would give them food, would give them shelter, would give them clothing, would give them purpose. You'd wake up having something to do every day. And under certain circumstances, that slave would actually, in some cases, even become a business partner. And scripture is, is pretty amazing in that we read every seventh year, what happened to the slaves? They were freed. And so slavery is not necessarily a bad thing. So when you, when you hear the word slave and you think about, I don't want to be a slave, actually, I think you do. Because you're in a position where you can't fix things for yourself. If you don't go to the one who is going to care for you, who's going to give you your very needs, you're going to find yourself in a really bad situation come the end of this life. Trust me, you want to be a slave for Christ. So the reality is, 
we can't experience freedom in Christ if we don't allow ourselves to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We memorize that in the youth group, Romans 12, 2. Um, and I think that there's a, a good, well, let me just read this. Helps us understand the importance of the renewing of your mind. When you sow a thought, you reap an action. When you sow an action, you reap a habit. When you sow a habit, you reap a character. And when you sow a character, you reap a destiny. Where you're going to end up all starts with what you allow to happen up here. That's why Satan focuses so intently on media, because he wants to control what's going into your eyes and into your ears, because that controls, that, that influences, it doesn't control, excuse me, that influences the thoughts that are in your mind. And those thoughts that are in your mind are going to lead to the actions that you are going to perform. And those actions that you perform are going to lead to habits in your life. And those habits in your life are going to demonstrate the character that you have as an individual. And at the end of this life, anyone who's found outside of Christ, who is not walking in the way that Christ commands us to walk, well, I think the most dangerous thing that, that could happen is that anybody here could be lied to and said, that one day, 30 years ago, when you walked down the aisle at church and you prayed and you said, Jesus, come into my heart. And then you went off and you kept living life your way for the rest of your life. The most dangerous thing that could happen is that we could, we could let that person think that they were saved when actually they're not repentant. Nothing happened. They prayed a prayer, but that, that's not what being in Christ looks like. Being in Christ, we can see. It doesn't look like I prayed a prayer and life is the same. That's not what it looks like to be in Christ. So, with respect to that sin, um, we're freed from it. We're freed from the bondage of sin. And I'm going to read for you a line from the movie God's Not Dead, which I think demonstrates where a lot of people today, maybe even some of us here today, can find ourselves. In the movie God's Not Dead, there's a scene where a rich, successful man who has seemingly everything in the world uh, that's, that's offered to us, says to his mother with dementia, he's actually in the extended healthcare facility where she is, and he almost never visits her. He, he goes there to visit her, and he's actually kind of critical and sarcastic. Uh, he says this to her as she's sitting there staring blankly off into space. He says, you are the nicest person I know. I am the meanest. You have dementia. My life is perfect. Explain that one to me. And still staring off into space, as if talking to seemingly nobody, she says, sometimes the devil allows people to live a life free of trouble because he doesn't want them turning to God. Their sin is like a jail cell, except it's so nice and comfy, there doesn't seem to be any reason to leave. The door's wide open until one day time runs out and the cell door slams shut, and suddenly it's too late. You are freed from that sin. The jail cell door is wide open. Don't sit in that jail cell of sin one moment longer. Walk out boldly and confident and trust in the Savior who freed you from that jail cell of sin, the sin of bondage, the bondage of sin. Finally, yeah, only two more points. 
To be in Christ is to be pressing forward in obedience to God. Oh, I'm not going to read Galatians because we're running short on time. To be in Christ is to be pressing forward in obedience to God. In Philippians we read, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That is what being in Christ looks like. We're forgetting what was behind. We're forgetting about all those mistakes, all that time wasted. Forget about that. That may have been you yesterday. That's not you today. Look forward and press on in the good work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Don't sit here and feel condemned about the message that you're hearing that's, that's bringing conviction. Feel confident in the God who wants you to move forward different when you walk out these doors here today. He wants you to obey him. He wants to use you to do amazing things. And it doesn't matter how messed up you were before. You can start doing that today. And he is faithful. He will give you everything that you need to do that. All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is change your mind about sin. And God will do this for you. He will give you the strength. He will give you everything you need to press on forward in obedience to him. And I, you're going to be blown away. You're going to say, God can't use me to do this. Watch. Obey him and watch what he can use you for. Watch what he can do through you. Look at the people that he can use you to influence. Look at how the kingdom of heaven can grow through your obedience if you will just change your mind and want to press forward in obedience to God and give up the sinful desires that just tear at our heart and try to get us to do the things that we're not supposed to do. And so finally, to be in Christ is endurance, perseverance, to the end. To the end. We read in Hebrews, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end. The confidence we had at first. How many of you remember that first day that you put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you're a little kid, maybe it's not as clear. For me, when it was a teenager, it was very clear. That confidence that we had at first, have that today. Have that till the very end. Don't let the world creep in and sneak in and cause you to think, eh, I don't really need to do this. I don't really need to do that. I can, I can lust after this thing of... of whatever I want in this life on earth, and it'll be okay, I'm saved. Don't settle for that garbage. Let's focus on enduring and perseverance to the end and really putting our faith in